Let's pray together. Our great Father who is in heaven and throned above all things, who is sovereign over this virus, who is in control of every sickness and disease and illness. We know that you are the ruler of all things. And so we come to worship you. We come to learn from you, to be changed by you. And we ask that as we gather together this morning, both here in this building and scattered about in our homes, that you would give to us your Holy Spirit to strengthen us in the inner man for the work that you have called us to do. We pray that our faith and our hope would remain firm throughout this trial. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. One benefit to having these masks on is no one can smell your coffee breath. You've, you've got to look on the bright side of life, right? Well, so much has changed since last Sunday, I can speak for myself and I think probably all the elders, none of us was expecting to be here this week. And it is a, a delight that we are able to gather together, uh, even though it's under such unusual circumstances. Uh, for now, this will be the only in-person meeting that, that is taking place. We'll evaluate how things are going this morning, uh, and we'll decide in the next few days about the following weeks and what we can, we can begin to do, whether or not we'll be able to have communion soon in a safe way, whether or not at some point we'll be able to have in-person ABFs. Uh, there are a lot of things to figure out. We don't have right answers we just kind of have our best guess, and so we appreciate your patience as we figure it out. Remember, Dave Lample's ABF does continue to be posted online. You can download that, also uh, his notes and the audio. And Carol Hardy's ABF is done via Zoom. It will be 11.30 this morning. Hopefully, you'll have enough time to get home in time for that if you do want to join him. You can email him to get access to that Zoom meeting. I also just want to go over a couple of points this morning. I think these probably are self-explanatory, but just to be on the safe side, uh, remember to keep uh, your children close to you, uh, your family unit, grandma or mom or dad, whoever, that's fine. Keep the kids close by just because of their uh, tendency to run about and they carry things unknowingly to other people. Um, so keep them nearby. If you, if, if the restroom, if they need to use the restroom, you might consider going in with them, accompanying them into the restroom just to be, uh, on the safe side. We'll leave that to your discretion, depending on their age. Now we know these masks are a nuisance. Um, we really appreciate all of you wearing them. Uh, if you're, if you're short of breath at any point or you're feeling uncomfortable, do not feel bad if you need to move that around. We want you to be safe. Uh, we appreciate your effort in wearing them, but don't, they're not law. <laughs> no, understand that, please. Um, we're advising that you avoid personal contact outside of those in your household, handshakes, etc. We will, again, leave that at your discretion. We're not policing that. We just think that's a, a good idea. 
The restrooms are open. We're limiting them to two people per room. There's a marker indicating where you can wait if there are too many people in the restroom. And then you're also welcome to go down the stairs near the fireside room and use the restrooms downstairs if you need to, and there's a line. One uh, item we weren't able to figure out in time for this week is the offering. So we're not taking an offering this morning. We couldn't figure out a way to do that safely without either having everyone congest at a box, putting their offering in it, or passing a plate that everyone touches, neither of which are recommended by uh, the Department of Health. So we're not taking an offering this morning. Uh, we will have an usher with a, with a bag. Uh, if you need to give an offering this morning, or if you're able to put it in the mail, P.O. Box 200, Martinsdale, Iowa, 50160. You probably have that memorized by now. Um, but you can, you can put that in the mail and we'll get that. Um, at the end of the service, you're welcome to remain, um, catch up with people, talk, have fellowship. But we will dismiss so that you're able to leave if you want to safely. We'll dismiss by rows. We'll start at the back. The ushers will direct that, but just so you know what's coming at the end. We will also be able to use the side doors, both in the fireside room and here in the worship center. We'll prop those open at the end. Uh, We want to thank you for your patience and endurance during this time. I haven't met anyone who likes these guidelines or restrictions. No one. Nobody likes them. None of us do. It's something to endure, something to be patient through. God's sovereign over all of this. This is one of those things James says, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. This is a trial, but God gives joy even in this. Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're continuing our study Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Uh, Last week, Pastor Daniel began the next section of the second half of the book. Remind you, the first three chapters focused primarily on doctrine, what is. Then beginning in chapter four, Paul moves on to imperatives and application. And he divides the first uh, two chapters of that up using the metaphor of walk. And so we spent a number of weeks um, in separation going through walking in a worthy manner, 4-1. And then starting in verse 17, the second walk metaphor is picked up, which Pastor Daniel began last week, walking no longer as the Gentiles do, walking with a new walk. We will continue that study of that second walk this morning, but I want to read the whole section. Chapter 4, verse 17, all the way through verse 32. So let's just read God's word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God 
and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Lord God, as we um, gather this morning, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see that you would establish your word as that which creates reverence for you, Lord. We want to walk in the newness of life that you have fashioned for us. We want to walk as, as new creatures, no longer as we used to. We want to change, and, and we need your power to do that. So help us to learn Christ and of him and the truth that is in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Pastor Daniel very kindly left me a lot of meat on the bone from last week's message. As you'll notice, I've actually backed up a little bit. Um, We're going to start in verse 20. We'll move somewhat quickly, but partly it's because I think the truth in verses 20 to 24 is so foundational and paradigmatic for Christian growth that it's worth going over again and and highlighting some other elements. Elements of. We put that another way. I'm just going to fix Daniel. No, I'm, there's a lot here. There's a lot here. And honestly, it's a topic that I, I think a lot of Christians could use some instruction on. And I'll, I'll put it this way for you. Turn it, keep your thumb here. Turn to 2 Timothy 3. And I'm going to pose a question to you that I've posed before. And that is this Imagine you are giving counsel to a friend, you're, you're having a prayer meeting, you're getting together over coffee, and your friend shares a struggle with anger, or lying, or lust, or anxiety, or discontent, or any of the other number of sins we struggle with. And they confess to you that they feel very guilty about this, that the Lord has been making it evident to them that this is a habitual problem. They confess it when they, they do it. They they know what they should do, they know what they shouldn't do, but they don't know what to do. What, what counsel would you give them? And, and this is where the doctrine of change or sanctification comes in, because I want you to look at 2 Timothy three sixteen, that Awana verse that I'm sure many of you have memorized. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, For training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, competent, equipped for every good work. So Paul lists here at least four functions, uses of scripture for those who are saved. It's profitable for teaching. And I think of that in the sense of telling us what we should do and what is true. It's also profitable for rebuke, for correction, 
tells us what you should do. It tells you what is true, and that then rebukes and corrects our wrong behavior and our wrong beliefs. And that's as far as I think many of us can get in understanding Scripture's usefulness. Yes, I'm supposed to love my neighbor. No, I shouldn't be angry. But it's also useful for correction, which is a word elsewhere used of mending nets. This is, it's, it's useful for actually applying. And so in our text this morning, we see a paradigm for change that I, I think should give a lot of hope to us. How do we change? How do we put on the new man? How do we become transformed in our living? Paul gives us some very clear instructions. And, and this pattern of put off and renew and put on shows up again and again in Scripture. So we're going to slow down here. We're going to back up, slow down, and, and hopefully um, learn how to actually apply truth and how to deal with our struggles with sin, uh, deal with the old man. So we're going to look at it in three points. The first, the preconditions of change. The preconditions of change. Now, what we're talking about here can go under a number of names. We're looking at, theologically, the doctrine of sanctification. Or we're looking at growth in grace or growth in the image of God in Christ. Or growth in putting on the new man and being transformed or maturing in the faith. Or sometimes it's called counseling, pastoral counseling. They're all dealing with the same thing. Helping Christians, helping Jesus' sheep grow in his image. Helping them put off the old man, put on the new man and be renewed in their mind. But there are preconditions for this. And they're they're in this passage as well. First, this. A, only Christians are able to truly change. Only Christians are able to truly change. Yes, unbelievers can change their behavior, but their hearts cannot be changed. Their, their minds do not become renewed. And, and changing horizontally from one sin to another doesn't advance in favor. Jesus warns of the Pharisees who travel over land and sea to make a single proselyte. And the Pharisees were very moral people. People who became proselytes to, is, to Judaism would give up all sorts of external rampant sins. And yet Jesus says when they do this, they become twice as much a son of hell. So let's look back in Ephesians and explain why this is the case. Or to speak pastorally, why I can't counsel unbelievers. I can evangelize unbelievers. I can give them the gospel and the promises of God in Christ. But outside of that, I have no good news for them. And we, we saw that in Ephesians chapter 2. Look at the first three verses. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Your blanks here is unbelievers are dead, in sin, and enslaved. That's the Bible's declaration of them. And so they're, they're spiritually dead, and they're following the course of this world. And so this, this pattern for change is not something we can take outside of the church and go market to the world. It will do no good, and it may even do harm. So this is, this is not for unbelievers. Um, the gospel is for unbelievers. The promises of God in Christ is for unbelievers. 
But if someone comes and says, I don't want your Jesus, but can you help me have a better marriage? I don't want your Christ, but I do want to get some control over my temper. There's not much I can offer them. And in fact, the danger would be, our second point here, unbelievers have no hope apart from the gospel. Look, look over at chapter 2, verse 11, as he describes our former condition. Therefore, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That, that's the declaration. A person outside of Christ, a person who doesn't want the gospel, has no hope and is without God. They're a child of wrath. I'm actually working against the gospel if I say, you don't want Jesus, you don't want the gospel, I got some hope for you still. No, there's a very real sense in which if you reject Christ, if you reject God and his son, despair and die. You're without God and without hope. The sane thing to do is be depressed. And so what this instruction here is for believers. Paul makes that clear when he puts the, uh, the caveat in here. That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming you've heard about him. So Paul's saying, maybe some of you he's reading, he's writing to, haven't. And they need to first become Christians and get saved before we move on to putting off and putting on and renewing. So this is, this is a, a, a paradigm and promises for believers. Unbelievers need the gospel. They need Jesus Christ crucified. They need forgiveness of sins. They need a new heart and a new spirit. And we offer them that. But we don't do them any favors. We certainly aren't being faithful. When we say, well, we can set that aside and just work on this other thing. It's pointless and futile and possibly dangerous. So only Christians are able to truly change. And this is also backed up by the, by the statement in Romans 8, that the unbelieving mind cannot submit itself to the law of God. You may be able to get an unbeliever to do a right act, but you'll never get an unbeliever to do a right act for the right reason. So, this is for the church, this is for Christians. So, only Christians are able to truly change. On the flip side, though, Christians must change and grow. This isn't some optional Thing. We also see Paul make that point here emphatically as well. Notice how he links this with foundational teaching. He's assuming if you've heard of Jesus, you've heard of your need to put off, be renewed, and put on. Right? Right here. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self. And as Pastor Daniel made the point last week, it connects with the verb you were taught. If you've heard of Jesus, he's saying, surely you've been taught your lifestyle needs to change. That the old way of living needs to come to an end. That you need to put on a new way of living. Um, so I'll review going back to chapter 2. We were saved unto, or saved for, and not by good works. This is again another reason why it's important to understand this is for believers. We don't become Christians by becoming moral. We don't become Christians by changing our behavior. We don't become Christians by doing things, but all who become Christians will change their behaviors. Why we were saved, Paul says. Look, look at that in, in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. 
For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Now that's really clear. Our salvation, our justification, our forgiveness, our standing in Christ, our relationship with God is not based upon, predicated, or coming out of anything we've done. In fact, if you read Galatians, to get confused on that may very well damn you. Where Paul will say, if we're trusting in faith and the right of circumcision, you're severed from Christ and a curse. We want to be very clear on that point. We're saved by faith alone. But keep reading. Even though we're not saved from or by works. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So God did not save you because of or from out of your good works, but he certainly saved you and me for good works. We become Christians in order to live differently. And then that that root and fruit distinction is critical. Um, The root of our new life is our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But that root will bear righteous fruit more and more maturely in our lives. We were saved which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And that's precisely the metaphor Paul's picking up, this walk. And so again, Paul's assuming this is foundational. The blanks we are saved unto or into or for and not by good works. The second, conformity to Christ's commands is foundational. It is foundational. Paul assumes, if you've heard of Jesus, you've heard, you were taught, you need to live differently. We know the Great Commission, but I think frequently we can forget what's contained within it. I'll read it to you. Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The Great Commission contains within it the mission goal that people be trained to obey Christ. Which is why the Great Commission involves both evangelism and discipleship. It's not simply evangelism. I think that's covered under the baptizing. But it's also teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Jesus doesn't separate that. Okay, we get them saved. And then sometime later, we get them become disciples. And they start, no, it's, they're, they're meshed together. We want to get the root and fruit relationship right. Faith leads to justification, and justification leads to a new life, but they are inseparable. They're in the Great Commission. is here. So unbelievers can't do this. Christians must do this. That, that's my big point. Um, biblical change, we, we mess it up. We distort it when we try to t- make it something that can be abstracted from the gospel of Jesus Christ, as if you could sort of package this as a self-help manual. It also becomes distorted when it becomes something optional, I'm one of those Christians who doesn't get sanctified. Oh, you mean an unbeliever? That, that's Paul's logic. He's ass- hey, assuming you've heard this, surely you know this. Now, to varying degrees, no doubt. To varying degrees, no doubt. But growth, change, newness of life. Okay, that's the preconditions. You've got to understand this. This process of change is for believers. Second, let's take a look at the process itself. And again, I can move quickly here because Pastor Daniel covered much of this last week. Um, Paul indicates the instruction, and, and I want to be clear here as well. These are really helpful handholds. 
Um, This is a biblical paradigm, understanding for change. It's not the only biblical paradigm, so it's helpful. This is a helpful three sort of sprocket. If you think of, uh, I'll oftentimes when I'm doing counseling, draw three arrows, left, right, and up. Put off, put on, renew. It's a helpful way that we can wrap our hands around things. And so we're going to look at that. It's not the only way. But it's what Paul uses here. He uses it in Colossians, in a parallel passage, Colossians 3, 9 to 10. He uses the same metaphor, the same picture. And it's of taking off a garment, taking off an old cloak, an old clothing, putting on new clothing. So let's look at it in order. First, put off your former self. Put off your former self. And the assumption here, you were taught in Christ, when you become a Christian, the way you live changes. That's the assumption, that there's a radical change in how you live your former manner of living. What we're dealing with here is habit and pattern and custom and lifestyle. There is a lifestyle that fits with the unbelieving life. Paul's already described that. Now I say and testify, verse 17, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness of heart, they've become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And yet we're going to see the list of things he's going to go after are pretty mundane. Paul's going to say, don't live like you used to, lying. Don't live like you used to, getting angry. Don't live like you used to, with foul language. Don't live like you used to, with bitterness and strife and interpersonal conflict and animosity. So he's, he's looking at some pretty mundane sins that I think we all can wrestle with. But he's identifying that this is what we need to put off. Notice that connection with put off. It's how he links into the very first subtopic. So what, what Paul's doing, if you want to look at a big Scope. He's giving this sort of model, this paradigm. Here's how change happens. You put off, you renew, you put on. And then in his first example, look at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood. There's your put off. Let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor. There's the put on. And, and for much of the rest of the epistle, that's how he's going to frame change. He's going to give you not this, but this. And so he's giving us the paradigm here. And then he's going to move to the particulars. So put off the former self, your former manner of living. In the blank, there is conduct. The assumption is a change in living. When a person comes to Christ, there's an assumed change of living that will happen. Again, not perfection. Not um, immediate, full sanctification. But change. And certainly a desire to change. A desire to live differently. A different path. A different direction. You're... Put off your former self, corrupt through deceitful desires. And your blank there is thinking. I want you to notice how much of this is tied up with thinking. As, as Paul describes what's wrong with the unbelieving mind and the unbelieving lifestyle, notice again and again the, the words for thought he uses. Verse 17, in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Verse 20, but that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming you've heard about him and were taught in him. Because biblically, how we think will direct our actions. There's an inseparable link to thinking and doing. And so we're to to change our former lifestyle and pattern, our conduct, but we're also going to change our thinking and our mind. That's going to be involved here as well. 
And so we'll deal with this when we get to the specifics, but this is probably the part of change most people understand. If you're going to stop smoking, you've got to stop smoking. If you're going to stop getting angry with your wife, you've got to stop getting angry with your wife. If you've got to stop drinking, you've got to stop drinking. The put-off is pretty straightforward. And so it's, it's helpful here when you're dealing with a, a sin or an issue to get very specific what types of behavior, what types of actions, what types of attitudes you need to, to avoid, to, to repent of, to, to cease doing. That's important, but often I think that's as far as we go. Okay, I gotta stop that, I gotta stop that, I gotta stop that. And the problem is change hasn't happened until change happens. Let me, we'll jump, jump ahead a little bit, but when does a thief stop being a thief? When's a thief no longer a thief? When he stops stealing? Maybe it's just on holiday. When's a liar no longer a liar? When they stop lying, they could be taking a nap. No, you don't stop being a thief just because you stop stealing. You stop being a thief. Look at what Paul says here in uh, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. Rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Biblically, a thief's no longer a thief when they have a work ethic and they're generous. That's when they stop being a thief. That's also very instructive about what's going on in the heart. It suggests that when you're dealing with theft, you're dealing with issues of sloth and laziness and coveting and a lack of generosity. So, so there's, a, there's a laziness. You, know, you need to learn to work hard. You need to become generous. Instead of that needs to be mine and I covet and I want what's yours, rather here you may have what's mine. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So, put off your old self and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now here, I believe we're dealing with um, the, the general, basic, normal means of grace that God has given his people in the church. This notion of renewal is closely tied with the spirit. And if you read through Ephesians, you read through other passages, you're going to see it's connected to, to things like prayer and the word fellowship in the body. But your first blank here is, this is a supernatural work. The word literally means to make young again. And it's to sort of undo what he just said, the hardening, the callousness of the mind and thinking. And it's a, it's a renewal. It's a refreshing. It's a rolling back of the clock of the mind. Because again, thinking is so important. Our, our, our beliefs undergird our actions. We'll see that when we, we move down to our examples. But this is a supernatural work. Paul's been praying for the minds of the Ephesians since chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. His first prayer. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Having your eyes enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. This is a supernatural act. This takes God's power. You, you can't make your mind be renewed. But what you can do, your next blank, is you can invite it through prayer and the word and interaction with the body. These are the normal means of grace. This is why you can't take this put off and put on and renew paradigm and market it to unbelievers because God is, has no promises for growth and for change for us apart from those regular disciplines. One of the first things I do when I meet with somebody, 
who's struggling with some besetting sin is take a sort of spiritual inventory. Sort of like when you go to the doctor, they do a basic, how's your blood pressure, how's your pulse? Okay, how's your Bible reading? Are you in fellowship? Are you serving at all? How's your prayer life? And invariably, there's some coinciding weak link. You think of a wheel with spokes going along with a particular struggle. Most of the time, that's, that's true. We fool ourselves if we think we can just focus on sin A, because there are some sins that are more embarrassing than others. If you're prone to anger, other people will hear your outbursts of anger, and that can be embarrassing. And so you may have reasons to want to tame your temper that aren't simply because there's a living God that you fear. And so you might want to work really hard on that. But God is not making any promises for change, any help for change that doesn't embark and embrace a fully orbed, holistic approach to renewal of the mind. Get in the word. Get in fellowship. Get in prayer. Be serving and be served. And in that context, your mind will be renewed. In that context, the Lord God will change you from the inside. Because in, in one sense, all of this putting off and renewal and putting on is useless if God doesn't show up and change us inwardly. All, we can, for a time, stop behaving a certain way. And we can, for a time, start behaving a new way. But all of that's like marching around Jericho. If the Lord God doesn't make the walls fall down, it's no use. And if God doesn't change us from the inside, change our hearts and change our minds, it's useless. So we do this, like marching around Jericho, we do this thing, okay, God, this is what you want me to do. You want me to put off this old man. You want me in your word. You want me in prayer. You want me in fellowship. I'm going to do that by faith, trusting that you will give the increase, that you will provide the transformation and the change. So, so oftentimes, again, what I'll see in counseling and dealing with people is simply they're focused on one thing. And they, they don't understand the Lord God intends to have all of you. He intends to have all of you. And, and I've seen people change. I've seen the Spirit give grace for people to be transformed. But God demands all of us. And we need to be in the context of being renewed through the normal means of grace. Point C, put on the new self. Put on the new self. He says it in verse uh, 24. To put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Now there's something interesting going on here. We're to do something, but the thing we're to do is to put on something already made for us. I think this links back to chapter 2, verse 10, where he says... For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are a new creation. I think Paul is basically saying, hey, God has remade you. Go live in a remade way. God has fashioned this garment of salvation. Put it on and live in it. Walk in it. And this is, this is the part we need to focus on because change again doesn't happen until change happens. And we can focus on the put-offs. We can focus on the negatives. We can focus on what not to do. But we need to equally focus on what the positive thing to replace it is. And, and sometimes that's less intuitive. The first one here is pretty obvious. Don't lie, speak the truth. Okay, fair enough. But the thief one, that's, that's interesting. Or look at the next one he uses. Um, verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But only such as is good for building up. As fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. 
It's not always intuitive what the corresponding put on is. Look, look down at verse 3. I mean, verse 4 of chapter 5. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. That's interesting. I don't know if it would have been intuitive to me to consider that a connection between a foul language and a lack of thankfulness are connected. But the connection is made here. And so when you're reading your Bibles, look for those corresponding not this, but this. Not this, but this. What, and, and think about the implications of what that says, what was going on in the heart. Of what's going on in the motivations and the thinking for why these things might be related. Okay? So put on the new self. Blank one, created after the likeness of God. Your blank here is transformation. This isn't just behavior modification. God has declared that he has made you new. He's made a new selfie. Now you need to put that on and walk in it. Be what you are, in other words, in righteousness and holiness. This is another way of speaking of Christ's likeness. To borrow, borrow another metaphor he used um, in the same chapter, if you go back, look at this. Verse chapter 4, all the way back to uh, verse 12. The work of ministry, remember, what's the work of ministry? To to grow the church up into the image of Christ. Or to put on the new self. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Which is what? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. How is that done? Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So just to sort of summarize where we've been. Real change is something, a promise, only for Christians. It requires a new heart. It requires God's power. But it's also not optional for Christians. We need to be involved in this. This is why we were saved. We were saved, created, recreated for good works. And what does that process involve from a bird's eye standpoint? It involves identifying sinful behavior, sinful attitudes, sinful words, and putting them off. Practically getting focused on putting them off. It also necessitates us being involved in the word and in prayer and in fellowship in service, you're not going to be able to get sanctified in a shed. This is so much better than a shed. You have no idea. Um, And then we've also got to identify what to put on in this place. Remember Jesus talking about coming in and taking a strong man captive, but if no one else takes up residence in the home, the latter end is worse than the initial. If we simply take something off but don't put positive Christ-like character in its place. We haven't really changed yet. So with, with the time we have remaining, I want to dive into at least the first example Paul has. What we're going to look at the rest of this week and the next week are particular examples. We're going to try to apply this practically. And I'm hoping, well actually I'm not hoping, I'm assuming at least one of these things in this initial list are things you interact with, you struggle with. This can be practically helpful. We're going to deal with lying and truth-telling. We're going to deal with anger. We're going to deal with corrupt speech. We're going to deal with conflict and, and, and bitterness, resentment. That's what we're going to deal with. Like I said, mundane, normal things. 
There's real hope to change. You don't just need to feel bad about it. You can actually change and live differently. So let's at least begin with lying. We may not get to anger, but let's at least begin with, with lying. Okay? So, therefore, having put aside falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. So it's really simple what you've got here. You've got to don't do this, do this, and then some reason why. Some motivational statement for why. Okay? So the put off is pretty simple. Put off falsehood. Stop lying. Now, one of the things I love about this is that if you just left it there, you could get away with the stuff that my children try to get away with. Or if I'm honest, when I'm trying to be more sophisticated, I can get away with, which is skirting around the truth, leaving key elements out. You know, so I'll have a kid come in, they're crying, and what happened? And they'll say the other kid hit them. And what they forgot to tell me is the other kid only hit them after they hit the other kid four times. It's technically true. So we need to set aside falsehood, but we really haven't changed until we learn to speak the truth with our neighbor. And speaking the truth is more than just not lying. Being a truth speaker is more than simply not lying. Right? So I'll ask my kids now. Here's, here's a tip. If you've got, you got people in your life, children in your life who are doing this, here's a tip. When, when my kids will try to lawyer up on me. Not, not these two children in the front here. Other children. Um, when they try to lawyer up on me, well, I said, I'll just stop them right there. And instead of dickering over whether or not this is totally true, when, I, when you answered that question, were you trying to have daddy or mommy have an accurate picture of what happened? Or were you hoping that we'd have an inaccurate picture of what happened? That's the issue, right? It doesn't matter whether technically what I said was true. Were you trying to deceive me? Were you, were you trying to make what I understood happen be skewed, twisted from what is true? If, if the answer is I was the, the latter, then you lied. You are not speaking the truth. That doesn't mean that when someone asks us every, something, we have to tell them everything. But whatever portion we tell them needs to be an accurate picture. We need to be truth speakers. And this gets all the way back to the garden. This gets all the way back to, to Satan, who according to Jesus, listen, listen to this stinging rebuke to the Pharisees. Not, not to the Pharisees, I'm sorry. To the Jews who had believed in him. John eight forty four. You are of your father the devil, Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. When Satan lies, he's speaking his native tongue. So I want you to here's here's what's going on with lying and honesty, right? God is a talking God. And he speaks. And what happens when God speaks is reality conforms to his words. He says, let there be light. There's light. God says, let there be day and night. There's day and there's night. He says, let there be trees. There are trees. So everything that God says perfectly conforms to reality. In God's instance, it's because reality does the shaping and the moving and the changing. Now, our job after God is to speak true things of what he has done. That's our job. The, the root of the Greek word for confess is identical in English and in Greek. In Greek, it's homo, same, logos, homologeo, 
speak, and in English, it means to say the same thing. And so what we are called on to do is to say what God has said, to agree with him, to, to speak that which is, right? So, that, so we are the subservient ones. God speaks, reality takes shape around his word, and then we're to speak the things that are. And the temptation for us is to want to play God and, and speak that which isn't, hoping reality will sort of bend around what we said. And if I can deceive you, there's a sense in which that's what's happening. I'm creating this sort of false reality, and your mind takes it in, and you think that's real, and I can get the benefits of that. And, and we're, we're stepping into the role of the serpent and the snake. But we're not, not being submissive servants and slaves who simply say what is and what our master has said. No, we're taking control of the narrative. We want to speak and have reality conform to our wishes. Because it would be a lot easier. i got some things I'd like that if I could just twist and shape. And so that's, what, that's the difference between lying and being a truth speaker. Is your goal when you speak, that those who I speak to would have an accurate, truthful understanding of what I'm saying. It doesn't mean I have to tell them everything. If someone says, how are you doing today? Well, I better tell you everything because I don't want to be a... F- but the piece that I tell you needs to be an accurate piece of the picture. Right, And he gives us a reason for this. He gives us a reason for this. For we are members of one another. And, and he primarily has in view here in the body, right? Speak the truth to your neighbor for we're members of one another. This doesn't mean we have permission to lie to unbelievers. But this even ties back all the way to the beginning of chapter 4, where his concern is unity and maturity in the body, right? And so I want you to picture this, this metaphor of what's going on if we stop viewing words as ways to speak truth, which is how the body builds itself up in love. Remember that? Verse 15 of chapter 4, rather speaking the truth in love, or to grow up in every way into him who's the head. So the body grows, and the body speaks the truth in love to itself. What happens when the body stops speaking the truth in love to itself? Well, we know what that's like in, in our own medical conditions because we know what autoimmune diseases are. We know what happens when, when parts of our body to use the metaphor, believe lies. When your immune system identifies some healthy part of you as a threat. You've heard of Hansen's disease, which was formerly called leprosy. When parts of the body that should have been relating pain and danger to the brain, don't. And so people would cut themselves and and eventually they'd have all sorts of of problems. We, We know what it's like when the body isn't working harmoniously. You can imagine the the, dis, the chaos, the discord, if, if the finger's giving wrong information to the brain and the feet. And that's the picture Paul has in mind. If we, start, if we stop speaking the truth to each other, if we're lying to each other, this body's not going to function harmoniously. That's part maybe of some of the reality we need to be renewed in, that we're part of something bigger. And that me speaking the truth to you has a greater impact than simply me getting what I want. So practically, how do, you, how do you do that? I'll just try to use some examples here just with this one. So let's just say lying or speaking the truth is something you, you feel this is something I need to work on. How, how would you go through this with the put off, put on, renew? Let's start with the middle, the renew. I'd first want to make sure, are you in the word? Are you in prayer? Are you in fellowship? And that's more difficult, admittedly, during our social distancing, but thankfully things seem to be easing up. Make sure you're there. There's, no, there's nothing that can replace and that, and, and there's no expectation we can have of change if that's not taking place. Then I'd set up 
some very practical measures of accountability on the putting off. Uh, if, if it were me, I'd say something like, okay, find times in the day to stop and do a review of your communication. Maybe you're going to take your lunch time every day and you're going to review all the communication you've had that morning. Has been any time where I was trying to deceive, where I was trying to be less than honest. We have so many euphemisms for lying. Sorry if I was a little less than honest. Oh, you mean you lied? Well, uh, yeah. Whatever floats your boat. If you were being less than honest, if you were speaking, just really simply, were you speaking the truth today? If the answer is no, deal with it. If you lied to someone else, go make it right. Commit to do that. That's going to really help. If you commit now that any time I deceive my neighbor, I'm going to go confess that to my neighbor and seek their forgiveness. It's not going to be long before the sting of that is going to start making you think before you speak, right? So that would be one thing. Maybe even getting some accountability partners. If you're married, asking your husband, asking your wife, ask me, how, how is your wife's communication today? How is my speech today? But then positively becoming someone who speaks the truth, trying to actually think, what can I do to be someone who speaks truth? How can I help this person have a right and truthful understanding? This will even get back to the body growing. We, we should be giving thought to how to edify and encourage and speak the truth to each other. If you're just focusing on not lying, not lying, not lying, you're missing the bigger picture. Be a true speaker, be a true speaker, be a truth speaker. Let the words of life be on your lips. That would be how you might actually start to make some change. You've got, you got a strategy for putting off. You've got a strategy for putting on. You've got goals. You've you're got accountability. And you're in fellowship, and you're in the word, and you're in prayer. That, that's what that might look like. We, we are going to stop here because we've got a closing song. We're going to pick up with anger next week. We'll try to get through the rest of this. But this is really, really practical. Sanctification is not some mystery. But it takes work and focus. But it's, it's straightforward and it's here. And God's word has answers. Please, we're going to stand for our closing song. And then the ushers will dismiss you.